you feel a lot more empowered when you're working and you're, you're pushing forward a project that you believe in is for yourself. Welcome to Inside the Apple Studio, a podcast that talks with architects to learn how they use Apple products in the practice of architecture with your host, Neil Pan. Support for Inside the Apple Studio comes from Monograph. Monograph is the cloud-based practice operations solution built for architects by architects. Learn how Monograph can help you be more productive at monograph.com. In this episode, I'm privileged to have on the show an entrepreneur, strategist, and architectural designer who has worked for one of the largest architectural firms in the world. He's the son of immigrants from southern China and from his Midwest upbringing has founded several businesses and has a natural curiosity that is helping to build the next generation of resources and tools designed specifically for architects. I'd like to welcome Robert Yoon to the show. Thank you. I appreciate you joining me today. Robert, I'd like to start off by having you kind of explain what growing up in Chicago was like and the influence of learning how to run a small family-owned restaurant had on you. Oh, wow. Uh, going way back, it was tough. You know, my parents were, were immigrants, not very highly educated. Uh, lived in a really tiny apartment where I shared a bedroom with my two older brothers, uh, an uncle, and my grandpa. So it was a big household in a very small apartment. Um, it was tough. It was gritty. And I think that teaches a lot for a young child in terms of what, what struggles are really like to grow up in a household like that. And then, and then having to help the family out in terms of managing a small local Chinese restaurant. Yeah. How did that uh, influence what you ended up? I mean, did that maybe influence you to kind of run your own business eventually? And we'll, we'll get to that a little later, but did that seem, do you think that had an influence on what you're doing today? I think it might have just like watching my dad try to figure it out and, and, you know, take, take that project on, uh, head on. Right. So it must've had an influence. It also like made it very clear that I never want to get into the restaurant business. Ever <laughs> in life. Uh, it's ordinarily hard. Uh, but I think it does teach us a lot about like having ambition, uh, working hard and, and okay failing. Like we definitely had a few restaurants and some were successful and some were very not successful. And at the end of the day, we all, we survive and we moved on with our lives. And, and I think that was a really good learning, like learning lesson. That's hard to learn without having the same exact upbringing. You next were on an architectural track in high school, ultimately leading you to study architecture at the University of Illinois. Yep. What took you to taking architecture or that track in, in high school? Oh, wow. Uh, well, it was funny. Like Growing up, I, I was classic architect story. Like I think we hear this probably 90% of the time, but I love playing with Legos. Okay. But coming from a poor household, like really realistically, that's all the toys that my parents could buy for me at the time. I never had a video game, um, never had other toys. Legos were were affordable, uh, cheap to to say nonetheless. So as soon as I got into laying tech uh, at in Chicago, it was very clear, like oh, like I kind of like this already. I kind of like to draw. It was a pretty no brainer decision to go down that course track at at high school. 
Um, and that did really well. Uh, there was a new house competition uh, the last two years, both junior year and senior year, that I, I placed uh, both times. The last senior year placed first, which won me my first architectural job. It was an internship at Halliburton Root. Did they find out about you or were they like somebody that worked there, a judge on that, that learned about you? It was a competition across all public high schools in the city. And and the prizes were, well, it was a trophy and placement in terms of an internship in a in participating firms. Oh, wow. I do have to take that back. I think my very first office was at Rada Architects, okay. which did mostly uh, higher, like educational work in the city. Then my second internship, so I won the first in junior year, and then senior year I won the position at Halliburton Root, uh, which is one of the oldest firms in in Chicago. They were one of the original firms to essentially design Soldier Field, just to kind of date how how old the, the firm is. That must have been an interesting experience then, working for such an established firm. So much history. It was, it was great. It was beautiful. When you then went on to university, was there ever a class or a professor that had a big impact on you personally? There was one in particular. It was, well, there's two, actually. The first professor, his name is Rusty Walker. Coincidentally, he's also now a principal at Halliburton Root. But I remember his comment during final review that the project was so strong that it was stronger than most graduate work. And that it was very nice of him to say that, but it also gave me the confidence I needed to, to keep going. Um, until this day, I still remember that quote. Then the second professor is Richard Blunder, who I ended up working for him shortly afterwards. Uh, but he was my senior studio professor. He essentially led the studio in terms of the Lyceum competition, which was a international competition. The goal was to design a market in Mexico City. I placed first. And the prize was a, a traveling fellowship, uh, which was amazing. Like I spent next year afterwards uh, backpacking around the world. Congratulations on winning that. And what was that experience like being able to travel around the world on this fellowship? Oh, it's just you have to reimagine yourself being 21, giving uh, a, a large pool of money. And just the goal was just like travel. Uh, it was amazing. I envy that time of my life and would love, I would do anything to get it back. Right. Incredible. I think I did 22 countries in about 10 and a half months. Wow. Across continents, Europe and Asia. My goodness. Wow. Do you have a favorite place you visited or thing that you saw? Depends on the country. I think <laughs> generally speaking, like, I love, I love Spain and Italy. In Spain, I love a small town called uh, Granada. Uh -huh. The castle in Granada called Alhambra, which was the farthest uh, stronghold of the Muslim, uh, when Muslim kind of had a control over Europe. Um, it was the farthest palace and fort at the time. Right. Uh, just amazing culture and, and beautiful weather. Um, in Italy, I particularly love, I love, I love all the major cities, but the Melfi Coast is one of my favorite places to to go and, and will love to revisit. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful place. I, I, I have to agree. I spent some time there uh, myself. Not enough, though. Not enough. It's it's beautiful. Like I, It was classic, right? You, you rent a little scooter, you get like an Italian scarf, uh, and you, know, you spend <laughs> a 
spend a day on you know along the coastal highway right fantastic a uh, little scary driving along that highway isn't it in parts i, I was 21 so okay <laughs> was not scared of most things i would say i'm a lot scarier of things today okay i just remember being in a in a van ourselves uh, it was a school trip when i was overseas and being on that van riding along those that coastal hill there there was definitely times where i looked out the window and all i saw was ocean <laughs> yes <laughs> That's great. What a wonderful experience. After you returned from that, you went back to school, right? I worked for a year for Richard. As soon as I came back, I wrote him an email, wanted to say thank you, and, and ended, up, <laughs> ended up working for him for the next year and a half, right up until the 2009 recession. And then, and then I went back to graduate school. Okay. Was the recession uh, the reason why? It was not. I, I think... Now that I'm reflecting back, there's a lot of moments in my life where I'm, I would consider myself extraordinarily lucky. It was not planned. I had no idea that recession was already going to hit. And you don't know because you apply to school one year ahead, right? Like, so I, I already applied in 2008, acceptance letters in March of 2009. Yeah. So like, you know, the fall, fall classes of 2009 in terms of University of Michigan, and that was also like right at the beginning of the recession. So I just I just got extraordinarily lucky in terms of timing. Sure. Now, while there, you had a dual master's degree, right? Architecture and digital technology. I did the first master's of architecture first. The program wasn't launched yet. I was actually part of the very first class of the master's of science in digital technologies. So what happened was my thesis was about using the Microsoft Connect, which at the time was brand new, to essentially scan spaces and use and envision using the Microsoft Connect as a design tool in terms of how to essentially see spaces through a different lens. Interesting. Okay. What was fascinating was that professors knew that I had the ability to essentially hack technology together. I was essentially writing a little bit of code to break into the Microsoft Connect. Um, and then I was trying to couple that with, with some of the scripts I was writing in Rhino. Okay. So I recruited for the new program that was like, oh, it'll be a perfect match. I can continue my research for another year um, and get a, a second master's with, with a focus in digital technologies, um, scanning and, and robotics. So what did the digital technologies degree you said you were part of the first class yes. what what was the idea of that masters and you know what was the focus in general and then had specifically your i mean it sounds like you just continued what you were doing i think that helped and knowing anything that's ever first uh obviously there was still a lot of things to be figured out from the administrative level uh in terms of course load and direction but generally, the, the theme was to have a specific master's program that's, that focuses on digital tooling. I, it was great foresight from the dean at the time, Monica, to essentially start a program that specializes in digital tooling, knowing that the directory of the profession is headed that way, that tooling, design, technologists, software, uh, and even hardware and robotics and digital fabrication were all evolving very quickly to the point where we're gonna have specialized talent uh, soon enough that would do this type of work. 
That's really fascinating that you were able to kind of take some an interest of yours and have a degree in it at the same time. Again, another fortuitous opportunity. Yeah, I finished the degree and there were absolutely no jobs that had that job description. It was a little too early for, for the times that, uh, when I finished. So then where did you think that education and did you have some expectations from your prior experience in your career as before your master's? Where did you think that was going to take you in the career of architecture? At the time, I had dreams of becoming a professor. Interesting. Okay. And it was more or less a litmus test for myself to see if I would stay on for a PhD. Really? So why didn't you? It took a toll. I think I think doing the, the, the first master's and then doing another year afterwards took a toll on me. I needed, I needed a bit of a reset at the time. And it was very clear to me at the time that like, oh, like, even if I wanted to do a PhD, going directly into it wasn't the right move. Okay. Where did you then go, then, if you weren't going to continue with the PhD? I went, went home. Interesting. Okay. Four hours away. I did not know what to do next, uh, so I went home. I went, went drove, packed my, my furniture and everything I owned in Ann Arbor, put it in a U-Haul truck, and, and came back to Chicago spent a little bit of time just thinking through while also working on my portfolio of what I want to do next or what, what type of problems I want to solve or what kind of work I want to explore. And then whenever I get tired, I'll be working on my portfolio. Yeah. What was interesting though was as I was working on my portfolio and I was trying to archive everything I've learned from, from my master's studies, is that I started to essentially develop a list or, or a bookmarking tool to help myself save everything I've learned. That quickly grew into the first venture that I started, which is called Section Cut. Right. Section Cut is essentially a bookmarking tool. I built it for myself in the beginning. It was really rudimentary. It was just a way for me to say, like, these are all the theoretical texts I've used, I've read, I've valued. These are all the tools that I've learned. These are all the plugins that I need to, to kind of keep in handy somewhere. It was just a way for me to kind of list things, uh, an indexical list of everything I've learned at Michigan. What was amazing was it was web-based because like, I didn't know where I was going to move. It would be nice if it wasn't on a hard drive. I was carrying around all these zip drives and hard drives. I know that that's not the way I want to approach the project. Uh-huh. And that's, that's kind of how Section Cut, like, Section Cut started when I was still working on my job applications and portfolio uh, that then quickly led into my employment at uh, Skidmore Owens and Merrill in Chicago. All right. Well, we're going to come back to Section Cut in a minute, but I want you to talk a little bit about working for SOM and what that was like. Oh, I loved it. It was incredible. I think like the, I've never been, being at Michigan and being around incredibly intelligent students classmates professors was amazing uh and som kind of measured up in terms of like being in a very identical was very similar type of working culture uh but everyone was actually a practitioner or like everyone we you know we make buildings we make tall tall buildings and the, the talent was incredible across the field i had an amazing time working at som and it's it's due to personal reasons why why I left. It was a relationship and the, the work life 
balance was was very stressful at the time. So you had a great experience there, but you ended up moving on and eventually you move across the country and start working for Blue Homes, right? What what brought you to the San Francisco Bay Area? That's a big jump. That's a big jump. That's a really big jump. I can I can say like one of the big reasons for me to leave when you work for a big architectural firm, I think a lot of the artists uh, audience can relate. Uh, you put in a lot of hours, and they're not very healthy for for a relationship. So due to that, we decided to make a big move. Always wanted to be on the coast. Always wanted to be in California. Okay. I know I have family members and cousins here in San Francisco. So packed my bags, moved on to San Francisco. Blue Homes was completely accidental. My thesis advisor at Michigan, Carl Dotman, was also the, the vice president of Blue Homes, who led the entire design department. I got recruited to, to essentially like apply and, and be part of Blue Homes with the job description of you know, sitting between design and architecture and the, and the manufacturing department, uh, which made a lot of sense where I had both expertise in terms of doing work on the architectural end and then having some of the digital tooling side that was necessary for the factory to execute on, uh, on the prefab homes. That must have been uh, a pretty interesting experience there. What did you take and what did you learn from that that you brought from SOM to this experience? Oh, wow. Blue Homes was super fun. I, th- I think it really ignited a, a fire in me in terms of like tackling really large, complicated problems. Uh, how do you how do you get a prefabricated home down a highway? How do you make all their walls fold? And when it unfolds, it's already completely furnished. Uh, these are really hard, complicated problems. And and like I had a blast, you know, just being part of the team and trying to figure figure out how to pull that off. Now I noticed uh, looking over your work experience over a period of a few years, you worked for a few different firms. You know, kind of briefly, relatively briefly at each one. Can you talk to us a little bit about maybe why you moved from different firm in a relatively you know different firms in a relatively short period of time? Was it just an opportunity came up, or what was your thinking at the time? So. At the time, even though SOM was great and Blue Homes was great, at that time to date, my best architectural experience was my time spent at Wilkinson Blunder, which was the, the firm pre-master's degree. Okay. And the reasons why I loved it was, one, the, the culture was, was incredible. I mean, like we're, we were all, it was a really small firm, no more than 10 people, and we, we just we looked out for each other. It was a very different type of working atmosphere where, where SOM was extraordinarily corporate uh, and Blue Homes was like an aggressive uh, startup. So it just grew really fast. It was a very, also a very large environment. I went looking for that experience again. Um, I went, essentially decided to just work and look for smaller firms. And I'm trying to find an environment where I know, well, one, the work is good, and two, that I will have a really enjoyable time working at. And that's that's probably part of the reason that I jumped around a little bit because I'm kind of also like hunting for that, for that experience that I'm logging for that I'm trying to replace. Now, while you were doing that, 
you also got to your your opportunity to to teach right at the Academy of Art in San Francisco. How did that come about, and what did you teach? I taught an intro to uh, visual uh, digital representation, and, and really what that meant was I taught um, AutoCAD, Rhino, Photoshop, and Illustrator as a, as a prelude to Studio, so that the students would be ready and and fully equipped uh, in terms of the the tool sets that they will have to to draw representational drawings. Okay. I, I know I like to teach. I, like, I really enjoy time in academia. That was a big reason why I continued to, to go on with the second master's. So it gave me an opportunity to, especially after Blue Homes, was really a, a experimental years for me, where I tried a few small firms, but also uh, dabbled a bit in, in teaching. So you got, you got to scratch that itch, so to speak, uh, of, the, of the teaching bug. Yeah. So while all of this is happening, I want to come back to Section Cut because Section Cut became more than just your little interior hobby that you were kind of creating for yourself. It became something more than that. What did it become and did what was your vision for it once it did become something more public? It was really exciting. I started something all by myself and then before it even took off, I was still in daily, almost weekly communication with, with my classmates from Michigan, going back to that Chicago time. I immediately brought on three other partners. I was joined by Cal Sturgeon, John Stewart, and Dan Wiseman. Uh, all classmates, we all graduated from the University of Michigan together, uh, but they saw a much bigger potential with, with Session Cat. It was like, oh, this could be a platform where not only myself, but other users, other students, um, other architects, other designers can be essentially curating tools, and then we can make that curation public, which was which was really powerful. Like, oh, we can now have some transparency into what other students are using, what other architects or young designers were using, and and saving and what they want to essentially disclose in terms of their their personal toolkit. So I'm curious, how did you develop it? Was it just all HTML or how, how did you build that? At the time, it was all the first version was all HTML, a little bit of PHP. Uh, but generally speaking, it was all it was just HTML, pretty, pretty simple. Uh-huh. Uh, it was not an app. It was just just a straight website. And, you know, at the first early users, they all filled out the Google forum and I manually entered those those tools or those resources for them. I see. You were doing all the HTML at the time. I I was, yes. Wow, that that's uh that's a big job. <laughs> it was it was fun. It was it was my nights and weekends for a very long time. Now was that something you ever envisioned monetizing or were you able to ever monetize it? We were. So like part of the interesting strategy was if we're collecting resources at the time, a lot of those resources were were also on Amazon and other like shopping sites. What was amazing is there is there's something called affiliate model where we were we were making a little bit of money off the commission of driving traffic to to Amazon. Okay. Uh, it was it never made us a lot of money, but it was like a little bit of a proof of concept that that this model could work. That later evolved where we finally, well, one, all four of us have a really deep interest in education. Uh, we ended up pulling and looking at our library, this massive library now of resources, and developing one-off courses. 
specifically around digital tooling. So like introduction to Rhino, introduction to 3D scanning, introduction to like 3D modeling, introduction to CNCing. And as soon as we wrapped up designing these courses, we, we started selling them to universities. Okay. Some of our biggest clients were, well, one, University of Michigan was very grateful and had us come by a few times. Uh, University of Tennessee, Boston Architectural College, University of Virginia um, were all clients of ours at the time. And we ran those workshops on the weekend. So I would be taking the red eye on a Friday after work to teach on a Saturday and then took another red eye on a Sunday to get back to work on Monday. Wow. Holy smokes. <laughs> and you complained earlier about working at SOM and not having a good work-life balance. That, that sounds like a bad work-life balance right there. Yeah, you, you can tell that my relationship did not get better. <laughs> I did not learn. The only difference was you feel a lot more empowered when you're working and you're, you're pushing forward a project that you believe in is for yourself. Yeah. That's something I saw when I was really young. I saw it in my dad's eyes and I didn't fully understand until I was a little bit older. And I was like, oh, like, I don't mind working 80 hour weeks. What I do mind is working 80 hour, 80 hour weeks for someone else. Yeah. Just like studio where studio was amazing in school and we've all done this where we work enormous amount of time, but that's time invested in yourself. I think there's a big difference for me, and that was something that like was was pretty eye opening. Was like I don't mind working hard as long as it's something that I want to do and it's something that I believe in. Did this all lead eventually to Dixon and Mo? It did. So what happened was, University of Michigan had us come had Section Cut essentially come back as a as a media company to essentially participate on the first robotics conference in the United States, the Robotics and Architecture Conference, which was also hosted by the University of Michigan. So it was really great. I got to come back to campus, did a couple podcasts and interview some of my professors. We talked about the, the state of architecture at the time in terms of robotics. And through that conference, I met a friend who was a mutual friend to Alex and Mo, who was doing their mark at the time uh, at MIT. That's eventually how I met Alex and Mo. They soon graduated from MIT and they were in a U-Haul traveling across country to San Francisco, coincidentally, so it was perfect. We decided on a meeting date, we met in person and the rest was history. Like I think we kept meeting for weeks on end until the point where like they helped me rebuild Suction Cut. Like, so we took that small little website and turned it into a full-blown web app where users can create their own logins, users can now have their own bookmarking tools, essentially return a little small website into a giant uh, application. What do they actually do there at that company that, and you, you ended up joining them, right? I did. So like I said, they, we all started off as architects, except they, coming from MIT, much smarter than I am. And they were already writing code and building apps on the side. Uh -huh. So immediately after school, they decided to not actually practice as a traditional architect. As two really close friends who were also roommates and classmates decided to freelance and build, build apps and build websites as a, as a business or as, as freelancers. Obviously, they just graduated and didn't have any projects yet, and they met me and was like, "Look, like if you want a project, let's let's work on let's work on section cut together." Yeah. 
this would be, you know, be a great way to just kind of get everyone started. And that's, that's kind of how we started working together. They already came to me with all the, the skill sets in terms of like knowledge of how to build apps and, and websites, way more than me. Section Cut becomes something more than, than it was originally. Yep. At that company, you did also more things, right? I mean, there's, you offered you know, software consultancy, right? Working with architecture, engineering, manufacturers, and construction corporations. Yep. So what all was your involvement at that point? And were you still practicing architecture at that point? Or did you give up working at a firm and do this full time? So you have to, like, that was an interesting time in my life. I was working at a firm. I was flying on weekends to run, to do workshops. I was also trying to hang out with Alex and Mo whenever I can on weekdays. Something had to give. There weren't enough hours in a day for me to do any of the things that I was doing successful, successfully. Yeah. So what happened was I took a, took a leap of faith, stopped working as an architect, spent a little bit more time on Section Cut to see if there were any legs there. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, decided to join Alex and Mo and start what the agency was called, Dixon and Mo. I see. And the role was they would, the, the agreement, generally speaking, was they would do the work because they're amazing designers and amazing uh, software engineers. They can write code. And I will do the project management and business development side of, of the company. How did that go? It it was it was a tough learning curve, right? Like I, I went from a designer to a junior project manager to convincing two friends to let me manage their business, and it, it was tough. I think the early days was like, okay, well, Robert's my job now is to secure clients. I was like, right, never done that before, but I, we were able to sell section cut to universities. I think conceptually I can I can figure this out. And that's kind of how us working together started. Like I figured out how to market our services. I figured out how to write contracts, figured out how to ask for money. Very hard. I figured out how to ask for more money, which is even harder. <laughs> and then when money was due to figure out how to ask for payments, which I think is even scarier. It's one thing to say, like, you agreed to sign this contract for X amount of dollars. It's another thing to be like three months later. It was like, hey, it's time. It's time to collect. And then to do that recurrently while staying in good faith and staying, you know, having the right attitude in terms of how how to ask for, for payment. Do you think any skills you, you learned by being an architect practicing helped you do any of that? Absolutely. Well, one, let's be very honest with, with ourselves. I don't really have another formal education in anything other than architecture. Yeah. Right. Like my high school was architecture. My undergrad was architecture. Both masters were architecture. I really can't even draw on other experiences. So absolutely. I think you know, a lot of it was just abstracting what I've learned into something that I can lean on and use. So a lot of that is just like having the word I like to use a lot is like having context. We use that word a lot in studio, use that word a lot in architecture of like the design have to have context, the design systems have to have context, you have to like bring in the site, um, you have to look at things as a whole. And it's really, if you abstract it, it's no different when you're trying to run a business. Yes, you do need to write one contract and yes, you do need to solve this scope of work, 
but how does that relate to the current grand scheme of things? How does that relate to the client's overall business agenda? How does it relate to our business agenda? And then to to make sure that you take into take everything that needs to be accounted for before executing on a plan. At Dixon and Mo, you then co-found Monograph. Yes. And now initially Monograph was a subscription-based website building platform for architects. Did that grow out of Dixon and Mo uh, on the side? It, help, help us understand how that happened. So what's really interesting is like most architectural services, a design agency is also a service-based business model. So we had really busy months and we had really slow months. Yeah. The good things about slow months is we, we just built internal projects. Where we always try to scratch an itch in terms of what we wanted to learn or a problem that we wanted to solve. Okay. Monograph actually took on more than just those two life forms. It took on many. It was a it was a name we had and we owned that we we used specifically as a way to essentially find opportunities to address needs in the in the architecture and engineering spaces. Particularly because we cared about it, uh, and particularly because we wanted to really find a problem and a solution for for the industry that we care deeply about. We did start Monograph at uh, when really started to take off was Monograph websites, and it was a website builder for for architects, which is super simple, really easy and drop, and we we created beautiful templates, and that went extraordinarily well in the early days until we met some friction in terms of competition. It was hard to compete with a much larger firm like Squarespace, WordPress, or Wix. We couldn't compete on scale. We couldn't compete on on volume. We couldn't compete on price. And honestly, at the end of the day, I don't think we were addressing a hair on fire type of problem, specifically for architects and, and designers within within the AEC. So it was back to the drawing board. Let's make sure we build solutions to problems we feel like are really a really big problem. Right, like having a beautiful website is a problem, but it's probably not the biggest problem an architect might have. Yeah. So it was really like really trying to go back and figure out what is that really, really big problem that we can work on. And that landed us to where Monograph is today. And it was really just reflecting on our past and, and with a lot of help from our friends at the time of hearing their their stresses about like project management is extraordinarily chaotic. And manage a project. I we have no visibility into projects. Projects are always late. Uh, we always lose money on projects. We always overspend time, and by the time we know it, it's too late. We cannot see the link between timesheets and why isn't timesheets a part of project management? There are there are a lot deeper questions like how do we how do we address communication with consultants? A lot of it, a lot of information is buried in emails. There's no great to do list. Almost all the project management tools are generalized, so it's extraordinarily hard to to make it work for architecture. There were so many questions at the time around this topic that, like, that's it. That's what we're going to work on. Yeah, and you've been successful at that. I, I wouldn't say successful yet. I'd say we, we have a lot of work ahead of us, but we're moving. There's momentum. Awesome. I want to wrap up kind of this section by asking you a question because you, you've had a pretty unconventional architectural journey here. How has this path in our profession, this architecture profession that is, been different than you thought it might have been when you first went to college or say we're in architectural classes in high school? How's it been different? 
oh wow, like ever since I was really little, my the version I saw myself was an architect. So I, I, obviously I'm very far from that now. I, I'm not making or designing buildings anymore. The directory that I've landed on has taken me very far away from architecture in a traditional sense. One of the things I remember from when I first started architecture school was I think the first thing they said beyond just look to your right and look to your left, those people won't be here when you graduate, <laughs> but <laughs> was that with an architectural degree, you can go on to do many different things. And I think that one of those first classes that I took at Cal Poly was exactly that, was a stream of people that came in and spoke to us about how they were doing different jobs within or around the architectural profession and not doing traditional practice. So I think you're a, a perfect example of, of what you can do with an architectural degree that may not have anything to do with the traditional practicing of architecture. And I think you've been very successful at, at showing a path that anyone who's listening can be inspired by. Well, thank, thank you. I think there's still a long road ahead. And personally, there's still a lot of learnings that I need to, to accomplish but I'm also very proud and, and very happy for for where things have been, ended up so far. That's great. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. And right now we're going to take a short break. And after we'll explore your exposure to the Mac and learn a little bit more about your Apple journey right after this. Support for Inside the Apple Studio comes from Monograph. Are you tired of using dated and clunky software to manage your firm? Or do you feel frustrated wrangling all of your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your projects stand today? Monograph is here to help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets in real time. With their awesome Money Gantt, you can immediately see whether you are under or over budget. Do you need to adjust your projects week to week? Their new tool, Resource, allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Be proactive with Monograph. Learn more at monograph.com, and thanks to Monograph for their support. Welcome back, everyone. Robert, I wanted to ask you, as you've gone through this architecture journey, now let's talk a little bit about your Apple product and, you know, eventually working on a Mac journey that you've had. I'm curious, did you start, you know, with an Apple, like say an iPhone or iPad uh, before you ever started using a Mac? No, I was 100% PC focused. I did not even touch a Mac until I met Alex Amo. Wow, interesting. All right. So while you were practicing architecture, everything was PC based, AutoCAD. 100%. 100%. So yeah. once you met Alex and Mo, why did you start using a Mac once you met them? I, honestly, at the time, it was Macs are, Mac, Macs are beautiful products. And Alex and Mo refused to have PCs any, anywhere near them. <laughs> so part of the part of the working relationship was like I had to learn how to use Mac. Interesting. It was not allowed to have PCs anywhere near the two designers. Okay. And not only that, but you weren't allowed to even use a PC. We can't, we, like, you just like, don't want to look at it. Don't want to deal with it. At the time, also, we were just three, three people starting a company. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of collaboration between workflows. Sure. 
even though I didn't write a lot of code, I had to chip in whenever I need to. And having one OS across all three members just made a lot more sense versus trying to figure out how to make a Mac and PC workflow work. And I was outnumbered. <laughs> so I came. I was like, okay, fine. I will learn how to use a PC even though I've never I've used a Mac, even though I've never used a Mac before. How's that experience been? It, it was a little it was a little tough in the beginning, right? It's just a, there's always a learning curve of learning a different operating system and sure. between PCs and Mac. Uh, but at the end of the day, like I love it, and like now I'm at a point where I will never go back. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm looking at my desk right now. It's just it's it's Apple products everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so they they got you on a Mac, and then eventually you're using Apple. Uh, everything is Apple everything like I'm, i have literally the airpods in my hands i'm looking at an iphone on my desk using my macbook pro as my my computer right now it's all mac now that you're all on macs and what sort of challenges have you guys had at monograph or even before that in use you know has using a mac been a barrier i think is what i'm trying to get at to mm. what you were what you've done at monograph or previously at, at dixon and mo Generally speaking, I think 99% of the time it has not. And the big reason is because we are always designing web-based applications. Okay. Honestly, all, all we need, we need Chrome. That's the most popular browser out there, and that's what we design for. It doesn't really matter that we, if we're on a Mac or a PC in terms of writing, writing software. I'm curious. So when you're developing software for Chrome, what are you actually using to do that? Is it all in a text editor or are you using some sort of other app to create your code? No, it's it's a fancy text editor. We've we've evolved where to the point where I don't even know anymore. I know when we started off it was Sublime, the which was a coding language text editor program. I think we've moved on to a little bit more robust tool that allows a little bit more collaboration and tracking for, for coding errors. But generally speaking, at a very high level it's it's a text editor. Like we use text editors to to write code. What other sort of applications or services do you use in managing your business at at Monograph? I can tell you one of my favorite, which we've used to to kind of book meetings, is Calendly. I lo I love Calendly. Like it's it, before Calendly, what would happen was I would ask you, Neil, when are you free? Right. You me a date and time, and more than likely, I'll say I can't do that date and time. Yeah. And, and then, and then, like you know, another twenty emails would go back and forth before we finally find a date and time that works. Calendly is directly integrated with my calendar. I can tell it what the duration of the meetings are. How do I want to space my meetings? And then I just give the link out, and then allow you to essentially pick a date and time that works. And everything else is done automatically, uh, which is great. So now, like it's I, there's way less more emails and like we go right into meeting times a, a lot faster. I can vouch for that. Setting this up and setting up our previous meetings was really simple and you didn't have the, like you say, the, the back and forth emails. Yeah. So that's a great service. I appreciate you sharing that. Now, since you've been on a Mac for a little while and you're, you've got a bunch of other Apple devices there, what's your favorite thing about using a Mac? My favorite thing is actually how intertwined the ecosystem is at the end of the day. Uh-huh. Like how 
I can use FaceTime on my phone or on the on the laptop. How contacts are all integrated, how message, messages are integrated, how simplicity the user design interfaces are. But at the end of the day, it's, it's really about how well integrated the entire ecosystem of Apple products are. Um, it just allows me to transition from one device to another so seamlessly that it's like, I think it's impossible if I was still using an Android or a PC. I, I happen to agree with you. That's one of my more favorite things is you're able to, as you said, pick up one device, go from your phone to your iPad or your Mac, yep. back and forth, and you're still continuing the same conversation, say, with messages or yep. your contacts. Everything is syncing through, and it creates a wonderful experience. Yep. It's less like, oh, I have to pair or I have to, like, log out or log in, it removes a lot of the, the nuances and the, the headaches that it might cause when you are switching devices. In current times, like it's, let's face it, like we all have probably one too many devices, but we all have them and we, we rely on them to get work done. So it's absolutely helped from, from a personal level and also from a business level that everything's interconnected. If anyone's listening is considering a Mac in their business, what advice would you give them? I would say do it. If you look at the cost, yes, we all can agree it's more expensive than PC. But I would 100% vouch for for MacBooks and, and Apple products every day. I found that the length of time that I tend to use the products, I mean, I have an 11-year-old iMac that my kids are still using for their schoolwork. <laughs> and it works just fine for what they're doing. So... The length of time that you can use a, a product like that is just amazing. So I think that's another thing that's really helpful. 100% agree. Okay, so let's move into our final segment here. We've got some questions to wrap up our interview with. Let's let's move right into the first one here. Okay. What's your favorite word? This changes week by week. Uh, this week is tenacity. What's your least favorite word? Can't. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Landscape, greenery. What turns you off? Closets. What sound or noise do you love? Water. What sound or noise do you hate? Sirens. What's your favorite curse word? The F word. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, interesting. When I was little, I always wanted to be an astronaut. So what profession would you not like to do? Oh, we already know this. Restaurant work. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I made a promise to my dad. I was, I was going to do as, work as hard as I can in school and never, and never work in a restaurant. Oh, wow. All right. That, that's great. What a wonderful way to wrap up uh, this, this conversation, Robert. <laughs> Robert, thank you so much for joining me today uh, for this episode of uh, Inside the Apple Studio. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I've been your host, Neil Pan, and thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Apple Studio. I'd like to thank my guest, Robert Yun, for joining me and Monograph for their support. Learn more about Monograph at monograph.com. Find the show in your favorite podcast player by searching for Inside the Apple Studio and support the show by leaving a five-star rating and comment in Apple Podcasts. 
Remember to follow the show by selecting the follow button in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Inside the Apple Studio is a production of Apple for Architects at apple4architects.com.